Right now in America, at any memory center in the, in the world, the standard of care to diagnose the disease is to get people to tell a story about the disease. And then you figure out what's going on, what the cause is, how bad it is, and what you need to do about it. That's Dr. Jason Karlowish. He's co-director of the Penn Memory Center at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of a new book, The Problem of Alzheimer's, How Science, Culture, and Politics Turned a Rare Disease into a Crisis and What We Can Do About It. We sat down with Jason during our final Miles road trip stop in Philadelphia. Well, it's interesting. You're doing what I do, but as a road trip across the United States of America, but on a typical day at the Penn Memory Center to figure out whether someone's memory problems are significant memory problems and what their cause is, uh, our most powerful technology is actually a forward question, what's a typical day? Namely, meaning getting someone to tell the story of what is their typical day or not, as it were, both the person who has the memory problem, but also someone who knows them well. So if you take all those stories and put them together, you begin to tease out patterns about what's typical and not typical for the disease, how the disease varies amongst communities and cultures, how the disease varies depending on the severity of cognitive problems. So stories alone make the diagnosis in an individual, put the stories together, and you start to figure out the disease in its natural history. One of the biggest challenges that Alzheimer's has faced since it was first re-described in 1976 was raising awareness and demystifying it uh, in the general population. And even by the turn of the century, you still had a substantial portion of the American public who didn't quite know what Alzheimer's was, how it was different than dementia, and why they should worry about it. Or they had wildly exaggerated fears, et cetera, of it. And that still persists. So education and empowerment is, uh, is essential for people to sort of make sense of a disease and do something about it. And so in that, I think these collected stories from across the country are an enormous data dump of valuable data about how we currently understand the disease or don't understand the disease with the variation across the United States. One of the major objectives for both our project as well as the Myalls road trip is to raise awareness about Alzheimer's and dementia. More specifically, we set out to capture a variety of very personal stories in an effort to show how pervasive the issue of stigma continues to be. Jason shared his thoughts on why stigma persists and provided insight into some of the related research he's involved with at the Penn Memory Center. There's two kinds of stigma that we think about and worry about. One is public stigma. It's the beliefs and attitudes that people have about the disease. And the second kind of stigma is what's called self-stigma, which is how individuals incorporate that public stigma into their own sense of who they are as a person. Stigma matters because it thwarts people going to a physician to get help. It thwarts a family member going to get help for someone else. It thwarts people talking about the disease to solve problems rather than avoiding it or hiding it, for example. It impedes people from joining research. It's a general way to kind of hide something and cause people who have the problem to suffer privately and silent and alone. And for the rest of society to have a problem simmer around them and not really take care of it, it only gets worse and worse and worse. So stigma has been, is, and remains an uh, enormous problem. The biggest driver actually of stigmatizing reactions by the public isn't so much the word Alzheimer's, it's what's attached to its feelings about the future of someone with the disease, the prognosis. Meaning it's about that things would get worse in the future, which makes people ascribe stigma to the word Alzheimer's and therefore to people who have the disease. That was an important finding, which we're following up on because what it suggests is, well, two things we wanna study. Number one, as we expand the diagnosis into people who are diagnosed even earlier and earlier in the disease course, Will the stigma of Alzheimer's spill over to them? 
okay? But second, if we could manipulate the natural history of the disease with interventions, therefore change the, the sort of view of the future of the disease, would that reduce or otherwise abate the stigmatizing reactions that people have towards someone with Alzheimer's? So that's a really hot area of research we're doing that involves kind of experimental surveys. Related to that, we're very interested in how changing the definition of Alzheimer's using biological measures will change the patient experience of having the disease. We're interested in how it might impact upon one's sense of their future, the kinds of plans they make around like where they live, what they do with their money, whether they work. We're very interested in how other people will treat them, whether that's family or in the workplace. And we're also interested in how that diagnostic approach affects family members. In other words, if I know that you have Alzheimer's in your future because of markers that I measure, how would that change the way I interact with you and, and treat you and think about you? So we're very interested in that sort of promise of changing Alzheimer's into a biologic diagnosis, but also the clinical challenges that will present, which then leads to the third area, which is the effort to define the disease biologically and, and therefore intervene on it in the way one intervenes on other diseases like heart disease or cancer, namely identify it even before someone's ill and begin to treat then rather than wait until they have disabling shortness of breath, crushing retrosternal chest pain, painful weight loss in the case of cancer. Similarly, in the case of Alzheimer's, we'd like to diagnose it before you have troubles managing your money, finding your way around the neighborhood. Um, and intervene with the treatment then. And so we have a number of studies developing those diagnostic tests and also testing drugs to see if they can change the natural history of the disease. In other episodes of this podcast, family members talk candidly about the nuances of Alzheimer's from a patient perspective. So we wanted to know how Jason and his colleagues at the Penn Memory Center think about solutions to this complex problem. I think the general recognition of the field is it's a many hydra-headed disease, and so uh, there's increasing recognition of the need to sort of take on multiple different possible targets for intervention. Amyloid has been and remains a, a target of intervention for reasons that I think are still scientifically justified, although the studies to date have been rather frustrating. There are a number of studies that are also beginning to target tau protein abnormalities that are seen in the disease and emerging approaches that look at other cellular and uh, uh, pathophysiologic mechanisms like abnormalities in the brain's ability to clear waste, the glial cells, for example. And then the third broad area is interventions and things that maybe aren't directly causally linked to the disease, whatever that means, but clearly have a role in, we know from multiple studies, making the disease worse or progress faster. So sleep deprivation, cardiovascular health, social engagement are a, a long list of things that we know keep a brain healthy and therefore can potentially slow down the development of or the speed with which the disease progresses. As we made our way across the United States, we spoke with several families who are struggling with early onset Alzheimer's. We wanted to get more context on the severity of this piece of the crisis and why the larger challenge of Alzheimer's is much more than a problem of aging. In numbers, it's not a crisis. In numbers, I would say in the intensity of the sort of high octane drama that is Alzheimer's, it is the crisis because it arrives at like the worst timing, you know, Imagine someone who's 55 developing this disease. They're at their peak of their income earning. Well, not anymore. Uh, they're at that peak in family of both, of, if they've got family in terms of uh, biological children, generations getting ready to enter into the workforce. So it, it arrives at the worst time, not that any disease arrives at the right time, but it arrives at a uniquely horrible time. And I, I only think it just simply emphasizes, though, the general dismay 
and calamity and lamentation that is the disease, regardless of the age of the individual with the disease, whether they're 65 or 85. Now, all that said, if you look at the size of the problem numerically, it is a problem of aging of people who are 75 and 80 plus. But let's not discount because they're 80 plus that that's why it's not so bad, because they need someone to care for them. They are not in the workforce. They can't go back to the workforce. And the someone to care for them is, well, someone else. If you're that age, you may no longer have a spouse if you ever had one in the first place, or that spouse herself or himself may need care. If you have adult children, the odds are you don't have as many as generations past had, family size having shrunk. And, even, and if you do, the odds are they're not around you physically, you know, family size is having dispersed. And that family, of course, is no longer a family which has the usual structure of the women do these things and the men do those things. And so out of that natural arrangement, caregiving shall follow. But rather, most families now, you know, are dual career, not necessarily because of ambitious careers, just we got enough money in this house to make ends meet. Well, then add to that the job of caregiving and the fact that it still uniformly falls on women. So then you have this 40-year-old woman who's trying to make ends meet in a family and raise her children who now has to manage her mother-in-law who's having forgetfulness, who lives alone. So, you know, I think that's just as high-octane awful as the 55-year-old early onset. And that's more common. Um, than is the early onset disease. We are just now beginning to understand and grapple with the data around women in Alzheimer's. According to the Cure Alzheimer's Fund website, there are 6 million Americans suffering from Alzheimer's and 4 million of them are women. And this statistic only touches on one aspect of the issue. In his book, The Problem of Alzheimer's, Jason argues that feminism helps shine a light on the other piece of this issue, the complex role of women as caregivers. Well, so women are sort of doubly affected by Alzheimer's. They're affected because they are more likely to get it, in part because they live longer. There's also probably a biological mechanism at work, says the studies. And then for reasons that are cultural, they uh, often fall into the default role of the caregiver. I can only say cultural because I can't find an answer to that that comes from a policymaker's decision. But policymaking certainly makes that more likely. If you don't have a long-term care system in place, which this country doesn't have, you then rely on families to work it out. And in our culture, it was still within people's lifetime that people would say, well, you know, the job of the woman is to take care of things at home and the man to earn the money. And whether that's right or wrong isn't the point, but what that means is that that means the woman will have to therefore do the caregiving role. That could be fine as a society, we could say that, but then that means that she doubly bears that role. It can be excruciatingly difficult to navigate issues like healthcare and insurance, especially in the midst of a family crisis like an Alzheimer's diagnosis. During our conversation, Jason provided some important context to help us understand the role of American politics and its impact on social insurance programs. Most importantly, Jason helps provide us with clues as to what needs to change if we are to equip the growing number of suffering American families with the healthcare and insurance options we so desperately need. So we're the only developed nation that does not have comprehensive social insurance for long-term care. Uh, the last effort to do that was in the Obamacare, and it was a horrible piece of legislation, the Class Act, which everyone kind of knew it was badly risk aggregated. It kind of, even though it passed, it never got funded and everyone just kind of let it die. It was never repealed. 
prior to that and the uh, Clinton administration, long-term care never made it into even this legislation, so it never even got a chance. Then prior to that was 1988. That was the last time in America where there was bipartisan dis uh, agreement that long-term care was, would be needed. And it was an open presidential election. Reagan couldn't run again. His term limited out. And every candidate, right, Republican and Democrat, was for long-term care insurance, except for one who at most would say, I'll, I'll think about it when I'm elected, if I'm elected. That candidate won. It was George Herbert Walker Bush. So as a country, we've never been able to move on that. The standard argument against social insurance for long-term care is that we, quote, can't pay for it. But it's just a question of whose books are you looking at? Because we are paying for it. We're paying for it out of our money. And so it's, it's, it's our individual money. It's less tax revenue going in. It's less income earned by that family member and advancement and payment into the Social Security Trust Fund. I mean, I have daughters who don't work anymore or have reduced their work to care for their relative. Well, they're not getting Social Security. They're not paying into the Social Security Trust Fund. They're not earning the same income that could be taxed. So that's the cost to America. But that's off the books. So it's not that it will bankrupt America, that it is bankrupting America, but it's not bankrupting the United States Treasury. Most other countries who are similar to us have made some effort, and in many quite commendable. Germany now has a social insurance program in place for long-term care out of a payroll tax, and that was passed just a few years ago. And, you know, early days, but it seems to be working to provide some people some degree of support outside of their own uh, income to help pay for long-term care. Japan, as well, uh, created social insurance for long-term care. Their legislation is very interesting. They will not allow the funds for a family member to be paid to do the work. So many social insurance programs for long-term care, the money will be given to the family for the family to do the work of long-term care as though it was their job. We do that in the United States with Medicaid waiver programs. We'll give a family money to take care of someone. The reason why Japan shows it would not let you do that is because they knew that that would meant they were just paying women to get out of the labor force. And it was actually feminists who said, we don't want this to be money that will just further make us have to leave our labor. Instead, you use the money to pay someone else to do it. So that's a good example of how the way you design a social insurance program shapes the way you do or don't care for patients and the way it affects family members. So anyway, a bit of a ramble, but back to America, we don't have any of that. Um, you either are poor enough in needing Medicaid to then qualify, but even there, it's a waiver program. The waiver in the Medicare waiver program is that the state doesn't have to guarantee you get the benefit. It can um, say we have just this much money, and once we spend it all, wait in line until the next year. That's rationing. Otherwise, you're on your own, out of your own pocket, to pay for long-term care in this country. And we have not solved that. And until we do, uh, that's the crisis of Alzheimer's, is, is the uh, economic strain on families. Every Alzheimer's story is uniquely nuanced, just like the disease itself. However, one of the similarities that we discovered on the Miles road trip was the curiosity and perhaps morbid fascination around disease susceptibility. So we wanted to know, how does an expert like Jason assess a person's risk for getting Alzheimer's? And how might this information be used to help put our own views on risk factors into perspective? There's a lot of nuance in this disease. Never forget that. Seems so straightforward, but the more you reflect on it and think about it and try to discern your way to what's going on, the more nuance you see. And if there's one area where this nuance is, is uh, evident, it's matters of uh, risk to an individual. Having said that, if someone is a blood relative of a clear early onset person, 
early onset meaning before the age of 60, there most likely is a genetic component, which if they've inherited, their risk is, is elevated. And several of those genes have been identified and can be tested for um, so that you know even before you have the slightest symptom that you're going to probably get this disease. Those are very rare cases, probably less than about 1%. Having said that, for those who are from those families, that's a big deal. And I've talked with them. Some of those family members proceed with life like they don't have that and they don't want to know that. And others learn that result. Uh, and that's a very personal choice around uh, how you want to live your life and how much you value knowledge and how that motivates you to do things or, or not. So then for the larger proportion of individuals where the disease's onset is later, it's a far more nuanced and complicated set of stories emphasis on the stories. And it's almost, where do you want to look? If you look at the twin studies, it's pretty disappointing to see irritability as a strong driving factor. I mean, I'm talking twins who share a genome. Not very compelling data. Having said that, we, can, we have identified genes which, if you have them, do raise your lifetime risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. They're not determinative, but they do raise the risk. So that's the inheritance story. Have we arrived at a culture that says you should get that testing? Uh, medically, no, in part because there's so many other things we need to take care of before we sort of add that to the list of conversations in the clinic. Could we arrive at that? Yes. Why? Because we would have therapies that we would then give people that would be tied to your risk. We don't have that. But imagine a future where in America, uh, by the time you're 50, I think, you get your cholesterol testing and based on that, further testing and based on that, potentially a drug. Could we get there with Alzheimer's disease? Yes, I do think that that's a very plausible future. Um, at a certain age, a certain set of tests, which based on the results of other tests, which based then maybe a drug and or see you back in a few years for repeat testing. But right now, no, we're not there. We just don't simply have the, the interventions to do that. But we're, that's part of the research we and others are very actively engaged in. Even without interventions, we do have the ability right now to test and find out if there are markers present that elevate our risk. And there's one pressing question we've often asked people. Would you want to know if you were going to get Alzheimer's? I think the question is, well, what would you do with the knowledge? And again, some find that knowledge empowering. It gives me a timeline. It makes me plan. Other people are not driven by that. They don't need knowledge. They live in the moment, and they're content, and that's how they get on, or however they choose to live. In the work we're doing now, what we want to see is the knowledge-seeking individuals get that knowledge and what do they do with it? And the knowledge, I don't want it, people don't get it. And what do they do? It's the ones who are off diagonal that are problem. The most problematic being, of course, I didn't really want to know this, but now I do. And now what do I do about it? And those are the ones I think, you know, both clinically, you know, uh, we worry about. And so in the studies we do where we have to tell people their risk in order to be, for example, able to take a study drug, we spend a lot of time making sure, are you someone that wants knowledge? And if you get this knowledge, how will you use it and who will you share it with? And I am very happy when some people, after I have that conversation, don't call us back. They don't want to know it. And I'm glad they don't want to, that they know that they don't want to know it and that we're not pursuing it. Today, Alzheimer's therapeutics are at best capable of treating the symptoms of the disease. But how will science treat Alzheimer's in the near future? We wanted to know what these therapeutics might look like and when Jason thinks we could see a quote-unquote cure for this dreadful disease. In the year 2000, we had a vague understanding of the border between being cognitively unimpaired and being demented. 
we had no way to diagnose the disease until you were dead. In 2019, we clearly understand the continuum of the disease from cognitive impaired to dementia. We can actually label people who are mildly cognitively impaired and now with imaging agents probe into their brain and see the disease before they're dead. So we have made, I think, tremendous progress in about 20 years in figuring out the spectrum of the disease from unimpaired to demented in life. So we have almost ended the gothic horror story that was Alzheimer's. So up until then, it was fundamentally a gothic horror story. You had to die, and only after you died would I be able to figure out what was wrong with you. Pretty ghoulish. So that, I think, is tremendous progress. A reasonable vision of the future is to see cognitive problems with aging as at least somewhat tractable, somewhat amenable to our interventions. Imagine a future where certain forms of diseases that cause cognitive problems with aging are really highly treatable, that, you know, given therapy at the right time, an individual is highly unlikely to develop further cognitive problems. Imagine, though, other forms where therapy is not that effective. The rate of decline is slowed, but there still is decline if a person lives long enough. And imagine perhaps a third category where they just haven't been able to make much of a dent in it. And, you know, I think there's a lot of analogies to that. If you look at, for example, cancer, we've made tremendous strides in some cancers. I mean, taking diseases that were considered essentially untreatable into treatable, if not curable. But on the other hand, there are other forms of cancer which still remain highly, unfortunately, intractable to therapy. And just to sort of develop the point further now back to the brain, I mean, if you look at early onset Alzheimer's disease, meaning disease that occurs in someone before the age of 65, the more we study those patients compared to late onset people who have the disease after 75, we do see clearly now more and more differences in the neuropathologies that they have. Now, whether those differences translate into therefore the need for very different therapeutic approaches is to be determined because neither are treatable, but I think a reasonable punch is there very well may be different therapeutic approaches and different responses to those therapies. In summary, I think the notion of a cure for Alzheimer's is probably as simplistic as saying a quote, a cure for cancer. And yet, I think from when we began to talk about a cure for cancer to now, I think most reasonably we will say we've made some tremendous progress in certain aspects of oncology. And I think we could have that same hope for Alzheimer's between now and some distant 50, 75 year period. Remember though, I mean, talk of a cure for Alzheimer's started in 1980 and they thought it was about five, 10 years away. You can still find that talk back in 2005, 2010. So I think a reasonable story then for the next 20 years, and I'm gonna say 20 to go beyond five, is progress in therapeutics. I think there'll be some tweaking finally of, you know, this is slowing the trajectory of decline, this intervention because I think we finally figured out how to see the disease in life across the spectrum. But I think that's probably a, a, a 10 year story, at least 10 to 20 year story in works. The solution to this enormous and complex problem rests with all of us. And if we are to expedite a cure, we need to equip scientists and doctors like Jason with the important data they need to advance the development of therapeutics. This means we need to continue sharing our stories and participate in clinical trials and research. So if someone's interested in being involved in Alzheimer's disease research, my advice is number one, to go to the uh, NIA's National Institute of Aging's webpage and look at their listing of studies. 
Number two, go to the Alzheimer's Association's webpage and look at their trial match program, which you can sign up and find out trials in your area and other research studies other than drug trials. And number three, go to clinicaltrials.gov, which records all clinical trials registered. And you can then search on trials for Alzheimer's and find out trials in your area. Progress in Alzheimer's is gonna require changes in public policy, changes in culture, and progress in science and research. We desperately need volunteers for the studies to better understand the natural history and to test drugs. Thank you, Jason, for taking the time to sit with us. We appreciate the continued work you're doing to engage the problem of Alzheimer's on so many fronts, for being an early champion of our project, and for helping to make the Miles Road Trip a reality. We would also like to thank some of our other friends at Penn, Terrence Casey, Hannah Chervitz, and Dr. Jason Moore, for organizing and hosting all of our Miles Road Trip conversations during our stop in Philadelphia. We've included links in the show notes to Jason's new book, The Problem of Alzheimer's, as well as all of the organizations and information on clinical trials that were mentioned in this episode. And finally, if you'd like to support this podcast and our project, please visit myalzheimers.net. Today's program was mixed by Woody Woodhall. This podcast is a production of Joe Digital Inc. and the My Alzheimer's Story Project raising awareness and helping Alzheimer's research one story at a time. I'm Zach Jordan. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the My Alzheimer's Story Project Podcast.